Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. Welcome, Michael, to this episode of Engendered Reflections. Thank you, Terry.、Uh, happy to be here. On today's episode, we're going to be looking back on episode thirty-eight, thirty-nine, and forty. Thirty-eight with Dr. Tanya Yovanovitch on how witnessing abuse is just as bad for children as being abused. Thirty-nine with trauma therapist Julia Hochstadt on working with survivors of abuse and violence. And forty with Dr. Kathleen Kendall Tackett on domestic violence, trauma, breastfeeding, mothering, and the intersection of all of those different things. So let's start with episode thirty-eight, Dr. Tanya Yovanovitch. So overall, I thought that at a first glance, that it seems like she was saying things that were pretty much common sense, but she gave us some language that we could work with, so we can identify and call out certain things. Like looking at the beginning, you know how we say we have fear responses, but we can't always articulate. Well, what does fear look like, and how do they even measure it? So it was fascinating to find out how she actually decided to、uh, measure it. So she used blink rate, heart rate, and、uh, what she、uh, named as skin conductance, which is the sweat. And yes, those are all things that、uh, could be measured. And I thought, well, you know, you could sweat for many reasons. You could have a heart rate. Uh, change for many reasons, and you could、uh, blink for a, a whole bunch of other reasons. So why, how, how is it that she used it? And then later on, she looked at a couple of studies that it just illustrated exactly how it was used and how it was measured, like on things like like the maternal buffering that she was talking about,、uh, which hopefully we'll talk about in a little bit. It's fascinating that、uh, I was able to learn this. So, Dr. Ivanovich's current research program focuses on the. Interaction of traumatic experiences and neurophysiology, and specifically, she focuses on adults and children in high-risk populations, especially survivors of violence and abuse, as well as children witnessing abuse. And so, the responses that you were talking about in her research were responses that were being measured by survivors of abuse, as well as their children. Which makes me wonder, and this is just a question for for anyone out there, for for you, to just something that I thought about was since she is talking specifically to survivors, and I think you brought it up also in the in the conversation, is this indicative of the general population, or is it specifically to people who are survivors of? Violence. Yeah, I mean, definitely. She she talks about exposure to violence as being the main factor for study in her research lab, and exposure to violence either as a child for the survivor, who then becomes a parent and mother, or exposure to violence by children who grow up in low income neighborhoods that have violence in the community. That was another area of study.、Right. One example. Of a research study that she talked about was exposure to violence accelerating 
epigenetic aging in children. Well, so epigenetic was a word that was new to me also. So and she mentioned how your epigenetic age could be different from your chronological age, right? Do you remember so, what epigenetic means? So uh, to my understanding, it's, it's the age that your genes express that may or may not have an effect on future uh, outcomes in terms of diseases that you may or may not get. Your heart rate is at a certain age. I, I, I would say so. It's your age, which is not necessarily your chronological age. Uh, is there a more exact definition? Well, I think Dr. Yovanovitch's definition was the best, and I don't recall it verbatim, but it's relating to or arising from non genetic influences on gene expression. So things like exposure to violence, that's not a genetic influence, that's an environmental influence. Right. Things like poverty, the impact of chronic stress from poverty is a non-genetic influence on your gene expression. And so the idea is that these external environmental factors could actually have an influence on creating intergenerational expressions in your genes that carry on, even if they weren't genetically imprinted from the beginning. Right. So the trauma that a mother may experience can, in a way, be passed down to her children. And they may then experience that, and then it could be passed down like that. So yes, so I, I think I have a grasp on what that means. You talked about maternal buffering earlier, Michael. Yes, I mentioned it. That was something that was new to me also. So what my understanding was of maternal buffering was where a child feels less afraid or or is able to take stimuli more easily, more confidently if their mother is nearby. So as long as they feel like they have the mother in the proximity, they're, they're less afraid to do these tasks. And those responses, which we mentioned earlier, the eye blinking rate and the heart rate, they're affected by the mother's perceived presence. So if the child felt that the mother was, was nearby. I want to say as a caveat though, that maternal buffering, if I remember correctly, is only effective if there's a close relationship between the child and the mother, if there's adequate bonding and, um, and there's safe attachment, in other words. Did she say that or no, did she, she not she say actually, that? She specifically said that even if the mom isn't warm, it's still better that they're there. So one of the things that she did was the etch and sketch puzzle. So there was a maze where the mother controls the... One, one one knob and the child controls the other knob and they're supposed to work together. So if you take a look at that, they could observe whether the mother is warm or the mother is critical of the child. And so then they were able to separate the mothers who were warm and the mothers who were critical. And that's how they measured the difference in warmth of the mother. But she did specifically say that like that didn't even have a significant impact that she, she said that somebody being there was still it still had an effect Has, on, had a positive had impact. a positive impact on the child's on the child's response which which is one of the things that kind of made me wonder and obviously it's different is is there a paternal buffering like i mean it's still a parent right so if the child considers it a parent and i think maybe a lot of this because it could be intuitive, and I think a lot of uh, women might feel, oh well, as long as the dad is there. I mean, I understand there's also financial reasons and and other reasons why they want to keep the father around, but um, 
this could be possibly maybe one of the reasons that mothers may use to keep the abuser uh, in a lot of these situations around because they feel like having a father there is better than having no father. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that there are a lot of survivors who are calculating that, making that calculation in their head. And they think that having a bad father is better than having no father. But the research actually disagrees with that. And right. having, whether it's father or mother, um, having a bad father is worse than having no father. Right, because they have a negative impact on that child's life. And, and by bad, I, I just to be clear, I meant abusive. Um, right, right. Abusive towards the mother and or abusive towards the child. And and so I actually, so was it counterintuitive for you to to have learned that maternal buffering has a positive impact on trauma exposure to children, even when there's no warmth in the maternal child experience? Uh, honestly, I thought that was intuitive because... Me growing up, I, I do believe my mother is very critical. I believe like if, if she and I were doing this edge and sketch maze, and in many ways, maybe I wouldn't be the warmest person because sometimes I would get frustrated. For those of you who don't know, I used to be a tutor, and I wouldn't consider myself the warmest, warmest tutor. I, I, I would try to make the class as fun as possible and everything, but I would sometimes, every once in a while, be like, oh, oh, geez, you didn't do that. And so I, I really don't know, but... I, I would say that my mother is pretty critical, but I still felt safe or mm-hmm. safer with my mother around. To me, remembering back when I was a child, I felt more safe when my mother or my father, I had a, a, both of my parents in my life, which is very different from the subjects that she was seeing, but I, I did feel more comfortable with. What about the study that she did, Dr. Yovanovitch, on maternal child sexual abuse? and how it was associated with lower maternal warmth towards daughters, but not sons. Did you find that surprising? That if you were sexually abused as a girl, that you would be less warm towards your daughters as a mother than you would be towards your sons? Some of the reasons that Dr. Yovanovitch shared in her research study, some theories as to why mothers who were sexually abused might be more warm towards sons and less warm towards their daughters is because one, they could be uh, more permissive and have a more peer-like interaction with sons um, as a result of a maternal lack of confidence to manage these interactions with greater authority. They may also tend to interact with daughters with more hostility and less intimacy uh, because of these peer-like interactions. It's also possible that perceived hostility and reduced intimacy in mothers who have experienced child abuse could be a result of a motivation to protect their daughters from what they believe is a harsh or dangerous world and perhaps to help them be able to seek or to achieve the protection that they didn't receive when they were young in order to promote strength and independence in their daughters. Mm. That was another theory. Okay. I didn't think about it that that way. It's also possible that daughters, as we said earlier, remind abused mothers of themselves at that age. Right, that's what I was thinking. And so they want to maintain an emotional distance to prevent the identification of these reenacted memories or reminders. Right, that makes sense. But I think that the most important thing that 
I found from that article and from that research study was the fact that lower maternal warmth towards daughters has the potential to actually increase long-term emotional, social, as well as physical dysfunction and carry it into the next generation. Mm -hmm. And that would make sense. I think I, I, I can think of an example in my personal life where that could be true. Yeah. So one of the reasons that I reached out to Dr. Yovanovitch to talk about her research was in response to a USA Today article addressing children witnessing abuse and validating that the impact on children who witness abuse, on their health, on their development, on their future risk factors is actually the same risk of harm to them as if the children had been abused directly. And this is something that in the episodes on divorce and custody and protective parents mm -hmm. is something that I, I know from the survivors that I've spoken with in my own experience as well is not believed or not given any weight. Right, right. And and so this actually is able to quantify. The other thing that I thought was counterintuitive was one of the questions that you asked her was, do you feel that some of these children uh, become desensitized to some of the abuse? And she actually said no. That usually is a sign of PTSD that comes in later in life. And while they are going through the violence, some of them normalized as violence. So that was something that I thought, well, I thought it was counterintuitive. I would think that they would they would become desensitized, but uh, it, it, it's it's the reverse. She mentioned that trauma causes an increase in startle response, so it's quite the opposite. I think that just speaks to the lack of awareness that we have as a society, and especially people who are working in as first responders or people who work in law enforcement with regard to understanding how trauma shows up in abuse and in victims of abuse, and mistaking the shutdown of emotions and the disassociation that a lot of survivors have in reaction to abuse as not being traumatized. Right. Or being disengaged or sometimes even being perceived as the perpetrators themselves. Because a lot of the abusers have this narrative that that they build and they, they frame the woman's story in this negative way. So that was very sad to hear. But what I did appreciate about the doctor is that she mentioned that a lot of these things can be reversed. The epigenetic effects can be reversed uh, if identified in time and treated. So that, that was very good to hear because I, that gives you hope, you know? Yeah, so let's talk about the next episode, uh, 39, with Julia Hochstadt. Mm -hmm. She's a social worker. And she has 20 years of expertise in working with victims of crime and trauma and, and interpersonal violence. Right. So right now, uh, funny thing, she mentioned that she was from Rockland County. And uh, right now there's a, there's a measles outbreak, uh, as, as we were recording this, uh, uh, due to a lot of uh, parents of children who decide not to uh, vaccinate their children. They're having this issue of this measles outbreak. So if you're not vaccinated, uh, it's recommended that you do not leave your home. That's what you thought about when you first heard that she was from <laughs> Rockland County, Michael? For, I mean, that that was literally in the news uh, that same day did, yeah. when I, when I listened oh, when to that, it again. Interesting. Well, it's funny you talk about vaccinations because I actually just heard on the radio the other day a great story about these Orthodox Jewish nurses 
who created a pamphlet to fight anti-vaccination propaganda um, that's being disseminated in their community. So they they put together this pamphlet with an acronym PI, uh, which stands for Parents Informed and Educated. And apparently there's been a 40-page booklet about vaccines that's been circulating in Brooklyn's Williamsburg and Borough Park neighborhoods called the Vaccine Safety Handbook, a handbook for parents that's been published by Parents Educating and Advocating for Children's Health, or PEACH. Um, And this PEACH magazine apparently has a lot of misinformation in it that the people in the community have been trying to get some response from the medical community. And the main nurse who has been leading the PIE movement was on the radio sharing that part of the reason that Peach has been successful in continuing to infiltrate the Orthodox community is nobody in the medical establishment is taking the time to actually uh, disabuse the statements in the Peach pamphlet. Like counter them. And- yeah, so there's 40 pages and the doctors were, you know, were asked by some of these residents, what about this? What about that? And the doctors basically are being dismissive and saying, well, that's not true. You know, you need to be vaccine X, Y, Z um, and not really countering line by line. And so what Pi is doing is they're really going line by line, researching every single assertion and then responding to every single assertion with backed up claims, evidence-based claims, research in the footnotes. Which I think is a really great way to address that issue because a lot of the ways that people are handling it in social media is shaming uh, people who are anti-vaxxers and making fun of them with uh, memes and such. And I think in in many ways we we make these assumptions of um, survivors of sexual abuse where we may not be informed ourselves and shame them instead of providing the resources that they would need to be for them to be informed and offer that support both for both uh, anti-vaxxers and survivors. I think that that's a really great approach. Well, the reason I'm actually sharing this is because I thought that that's a great tactic for dealing with so many other issues in the movement to end gender-based violence to destigmatize what violence is, who is affected, um, really basically going community by community, line by line, and addressing every myth one by one. Exactly. Which brings me to uh, back to Julia Hashtan. She gave a statistic that I was really shocked about that I feel would be very helpful for the general population. She mentioned that 70% of deaths happen after the survivor leaves um, the abuser. So that's really huge. More than half of the uh, survivors who die, die after they left. So it informs people to the reason of why people uh, decide to stay with the abuser. Uh, sometimes that's the only way to survive. And I, that, that's something that, that's shocking to me. It is, is not intuitive. It's a good statistic that I can use when... Um, when I'm deal with a person who is a survivor? Well, I think that for people who are survivors or working with survivors, that's why it's so key to create a safety plan and, and to share this knowledge with survivors so that you have put into place all of the tools and safety measures 
that you can, as much as you can, to protect the survivor before she leaves. Absolutely. Uh, and the problem is that we have insufficient resources in a way that are coordinated to ensure that she has safety, she has security, and the ability to address all of her family's needs in terms of income, employment, housing, her child's school, transportation, all of these things. To make herself sufficient, we need to make sure that they have enough resources to do that. So so a lot of times that's that's something that we we don't pay attention to the uh, a lot of these facts. Something else to mention was um, that different survivors have different ways of taking in information, right? So some of them it may be helpful for them to read a book, but sometimes reading books um, may be harmful or or may not work well unless they're talking to somebody. The Courage to Heal was a, a book that I'm aware of, but since there's so many different types of learning styles, um, I think it's really important for the survivor to be exposed to as many as much support as possible so they can see what works for them. Yeah, I think that that's um, part of the delicate dance of working with survivors is knowing when and how to make suggestions that can be received in a positive way and instigate helpful change. Right. Uh, whether it's a way of framing their situation, an eye-opening experience, and, and how to name what's happening. Yeah, using the appropriate language when appropriate and when they're ready for it. Like, because it's just such a complicated situation, especially if they themselves may not necessarily identify themselves as being abused or they don't recognize the abuser as being the abuser. So it's so incredibly important to, uh, for us to hopefully be there for the uh, survivor in any way possible so we can just maybe not identify ourselves. And sometimes, um, like she said, um, Julia mentioned that it's, it's something we have to be ready. The survivor knows the best choice with the information that they have, right? So it's important for them to make that choice. And when they're ready for it, they will. Yeah. And, and I think the example that she gave, Julia gave, where she said that the survivor, if you're using the term, let's say abuser, mm-hmm. and the survivor is still with her partner and the partner is her husband, in her mind, she may think in response to someone using that word, oh. wait a minute, who, who, who is that? Just you know, he's not a perpetrator. Right. Um, he's my husband and still be in a place where she's in some ways on his side. Yeah. I don't know if it, it's about sides. She's just maybe not informed and not ready to, to commit to that first step. Well, for me, I, I say on his side, because if you're being abused, there's a hierarchy in terms of who should be coming first. And for me, the victim and the survivor should be first. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if she's not putting herself first, then there's still this equivocation of trying to balance the relationship versus her own needs. And she's still not willing to let go of the relationship because there's not an acknowledgement that the relationship may not be healthy or good for her. Or because it's abusive and she doesn't have, she's not ready to accept that that may be the case. So do you think that hypothetically, if she looks back in that situation, she would also consider herself 
like on his side at that point or she might not know. I mean, I feel like a lot of most of the, uh, not most, all of the conversations that I've had with the survivors on our show, Mm -hmm. the survivor is on her side because she's looking back, you know, years or months after she's left him. Maybe they're already in the process of divorce. Maybe they're already divorced and the, and the abuse is ongoing. And so there's a more self-awareness. Yeah, perhaps, or just, Acceptance. Right. And so for, I would say, unanimously, all of the survivors that we've had on our show for survivor stories, mm-hmm. they definitely are at a place where as part of their healing, they recognize the obstacles that were in their way that kept them from putting themselves first. Right. And they do face a lot of obstacles. And sometimes one of the other things that Julia mentioned was... Um, there are people out there who are not willing to believe the survivor. And it's really important for her, as, as she mentioned, how she always errs on the side, even if it's if it's in doubt, she always errs on the side of the survivor because it's low risk. I mean, it, it's much less common for a woman to be lying about these things, no matter how outrageous the, the claims that she's making. And it's low risk. So even if you're wrong, then, you know, then, then you're wrong. I, the risks are not that high. And it's high risk if you decide not to believe the survivor because potentially you're not only hurting the survivor, but the children, if there's children. and Or the and, community. Or the community. What you're saying, I think, really accentuates the problem that we have in our current system right now, which is that there are people even who are working in support of survivors in theory. Mm-hmm. Uh who are in the system and they may be part of the problem. They, by not believing or by creating doubt in the survivor for wanting to reach out or impediments for reaching out, they're in some ways endangering all of us. And the fact that the system doesn't actually support the full sharing and disclosing of abuse safely for survivors where there's this danger for survivors to leave and risk is escalated after leaving, uh, I think that that's something that speaks to the fact that we don't have enough support and interventions in place to protect the survivor. Right, right. I, if, I, if we did, then leaving should not result in increased deaths or fatalities or harm. Right, right, because she would be getting the, that support, the support that she needs. And, and you know, whether it's in the form of orders of protection, enforcement of orders of protection, mm-hmm. being placed in housing where the abuser does not know where the survivor is, very often those kinds of privacy protections are violated. Right. Some, very often people in shelters don't even know that they're not supposed to share and they disclose information or people who are part of that process right. disclose information. Right. Uh, you know, whether it's the therapist, whomever, there are a lot of possible gaps in the system that we need to address. Right, right. And and also just to inform people in general of uh, domestic abuse and, and these issues, because I think the more people that are aware, the more of a chance that she'll find somebody that will be uh, there to support her. Well, you know, at the end of our conversation, Julia and I also talked about the Law & Order SVU episode 
Uh, I don't know if you had a chance to see it, Michael, but it was basically an episode where the detectives in the TV show were debating whether or not this woman who was the widow of a police officer who was basically a victim of coercive control through his assertion uh, and threats of of violence by uh, taking out his gun every time he came home. Yeah, Yeah, that eventually over, you know, I don't know how long it was in that sh- in the episode, but many years of being living under that daily threat, she ended up killing him. Right. And even within the police officers who were working in the unit, who are specializing in sex victim crimes, they weren't informed. They well, not that they weren't informed; they disagreed. You On know, the definition so, yeah. of what abuse is. And, and what should happen. And so that that's something that, again, speaks to, I think, a really big gap in the system. How do we actually prevent violence and minimize violence and respond to violence if people in the system don't even agree with what they're responding to and how people should be held accountable to their actions? Now, I didn't see the episode, so I, I have a question. Was it that they didn't agree that that was abuse or was it that they were trying to protect the officer because that well, that was an officer right they that- didn't agree that it was abuse because one one of the detectives basically said there was never any violence before and so it was almost as if the attack was unprovoked like she killed her police officer husband unprovoked. even though he never physically violated her even and so she, this police officer did not recognize that someone living under those conditions could psychologically get to the point where they f- they felt like they needed to do that as a form of escape. Right. No. And and so the consequence, the, the thing that they were debating in the show is um, whether or not they wanted to s- sort of adjust their testimony in court to help her. Uh, I don't think I don't remember if it was to help acquit her or to help lessen her sentencing. Right, right. So it's important for us all to get a definition of what is abuse and that we all are using the same language because by what you're saying that is clearly she's being threatened and her life is 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 I would say in danger. Right. It, it, it was the definition of coercive control, but right. it wasn't even articulated in the episode. Right. So the 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 limiting of one's liberty to make freely choices for oneself. Right. And it goes back into a long time ago where we talked about Aziz Ansari, where that's another situation where some people didn't really have the language. Uh, they didn't have the, the, the phrase coercive control to identify that, yes, that's what it was. Like, we may have a feeling that something is wrong, but we we, we don't have the language to express it. And I think... That's that. That's where we're lacking, and I think the more we talk about this, and the more uh, people in general talk about this, we can hopefully use vocabulary that uh, identifies these these things, and we're not we're not using language to to minimize the actions of the abuser, um, because that's something that is counter to that. Okay, so let's talk about the third episode, Kathleen uh- Kendall. Mm-hmm. Kathleen Kendall Tackett. Tackett. Got it. Yes. So Kathleen Kendall. Yeah. So she is another doctor, right? That, uh, She's a health psychologist. Oh, health psychologist. Okay. Well, she does research on 
the effects of abuse? So she does research on violence, uh, trauma, depression, breastfeeding, and mothering. And what I mean by that is she studies how violence results in trauma Mm -hmm. and depression as a symptom of trauma and how that then, if you become a mother, influences your choices and behavior as a mother and how also, if you are mothering and breastfeeding, how it impacts your breastfeeding and therefore your relationship with your child as a mother. And then she also has very specific research on chronic Chronic pain pain. and irritable bowel syndrome as symptoms of trauma and abuse. Right. And how that then reinforces the cycle of pain that negatively impacts your behavior as a mother and therefore your relationship with your child and potentially your ability to be perceived as healthy and fit in right. the eyes of the court. Oh, I see. So that was that was one one of the lenses that I uh, tried to apply to that conversation is the, how the intersection of all of these things could lead people in court, like mental health professionals, judges, lawyers, to be using these responses, very legitimate responses to abuse against the survivor. Right. So this brings us to the medical costs of uh, domestic violence and how how expensive it can get. I mean, if it increases chronic pain, that's something you would go to the doctor for. And it's something that uh, should be addressed. Now, I know that uh, she mentioned that something like chronic pain can be addressed. While it can be attributed to, to violence, it can also be addressed by having the support and having doing things that you can do that is not necessarily medication. Because especially with the healthcare costs, it's, it's important to, to use what it, it is that you have available to um, address it. So she mentioned in order to reverse something like chronic pain, you would need to do things like rest and sleep, uh, use uh, creams. And uh, so so that's that brings some hope, I would say. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, another point that Dr. Kendall Tackett made was we can't necessarily rely on the medical profession as it's manifest in our society in the U.S., mm-hmm to help us heal physically or emotionally. And so we have to find alternative ways um, in building community, in in these other sort of basic uh, common sense choices that we can make around, like you said, sleep and or nutrition right. or being in community and, and surrounding yourself with a tribe of people who are supportive and accepting and um, can take a load of that stress a little bit off your shoulders. Right. She also highlighted five areas where something like child abuse uh, would impact. She she mentioned it affects behavior cognition, the social aspect affects the emotional aspect and the physiological um, ways that um, a person could get affected by child abuse, right? One of the things that really uh, caught my eye was the physiological changes, uh, such as changes in BMI. During the conversation you had, you mentioned how there was a study where there was a certain group of people that no matter what they did, they could not reduce that person's BMI. And it seems that all the people whose BMI couldn't be changed was 
the people who suffered sexual abuse as a child. So it, it has an actual impact. So it, the BMI is, is something that's, that, that, that's physical. You can't really change it. I mean, you can address it, but uh, it, for it to be hard to change if you're a victim of child sexual abuse, it's eye-opening. Well, that speaks to our conversation in the past around ACEs and Dr. Felitti's study between obesity and child sexual abuse, right? Dr. Kendall Tackett described the ACEs right. uh, study origin, and we, you and I had talked about it in the past yes. as well. So the fact that there can be this physiological manifestation of our sexual abuse history trauma mm -hmm. in our bodies in such a tangible way right. shows you that we need to learn a lot more about how uh, how abuse impacts you know our health Absolutely. Uh, just because someone doesn't have symptoms now doesn't mean that it's not going to happen later or that the symptoms that they have that might be apparently unrelated are actually very much related. Right. I mean, because some of them are, are pretty obvious, right? You have uh, the emotional, the, how, how a person can be affected emotional, which I think it is uh, intertwined with behavior and cognition. So cognition, she mentioned, is what your thoughts are. So if you have negative thoughts or you have constant mistrust, that may affect your behavior and the actions that you take. And that in turn does affect you emotionally, which does, of course, affect you socially if you have mistrust, right? They're, they're all intertwined. But the physiological one was that, that what is what caught my eye the most, where you could actually have an effect on your body that is not necessarily connected to your emotions. And, 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 and well, they may be connected, but it's something that you could easily measure as opposed to emotions, which are, I would think, harder to measure. In our conversation with Dr. Kendall Tackett, we also talked about lactation. She's a lactation consultant, mm -hmm. uh, and I know that you have you're having some experiences recently with being aware and learning about breastfeeding and lactation, the, the physiological benefits, both professionally and because you're a recent uncle. Yes, I became an, uh, an uncle four months ago. And uh, so I do see my sister going through breastfeeding. She's very passionate about uh, her breastfeeding and anywhere that she goes. We went to a restaurant on Saturday, I believe, and she she's just she's just very open about it. And uh, I'm, I'm proud of her. She I'm, I'm very happy. She my uh, little niece. She prefers breastfeeding over any other form of feeding. So I'm happy because I, I also happen to be informed on the positive effects of breastfeeding through a video that I saw over and over again. Um, it was uh, it, it was it was very informative, and so this I'm, is a work video that you were a subject to, I guess, because you were in a building where they just kept yeah, so it on I was, repeat, I was, right? Exactly. So uh, it was a 10 minute video describing all the positive effects of breastfeeding. And uh, and exactly what a mother should be aware of when it comes to breastfeeding, the differences between breastfeeding and, and how it's better than um, using formula. So this video kept on playing all day through an event that I had to attend. And um, by the end of the event, I was able to probably recite to you the 10 minute video verbatim. Just it was but it, it was very informative. OK, so, Michael, 
What what are some of the benefits of breastfeeding? So one of the major ones is uh, it helps uh, facilitate the attachment between the mother and the child. Uh, so that's that, that's extremely important. So it helps with the bonding. But uh, even more than that, it uh, the video mentioned how there's uh, the immunity, I believe, uh, is passed down. So there's there's nutrients and things that you can get from breast milk that you can't get from formula. You're building antibodies. Building antibodies. So there's a lot of positive effects. And then it also helps reduce incidence of uh, allergies. Right. Breast milk passes antibodies that help your baby fight off viruses and bacteria. Right. So you're lowering the baby's risk to asthma and allergies. Also lowering, I believe, the... Rates of infection, ear infections, respiratory illnesses, diarrhea. Um, And these are just benefits to the baby. There are also benefits that carry through into adulthood. Breastfeeding prevents obesity. It helps develop better teeth. It lowers the risk of heart disease, lowers the risk of juvenile diabetes. It lowers the risk of multiple sclerosis and so many other diseases, digestive diseases, Crohn's disease, as well as childhood cancers. Wow, that's, that's, that's a lot of benefits. <laughs> what about when we were, when Kathleen and I were talking about the culture of breastfeeding? Right, that's, that was the next thing that I was going to mention. Um, I haven't seen it myself firsthand where there were people shaming women for breastfeeding, because you you did mention that during your conversation. And one of the things you mentioned is that a lot of women themselves, uh, you mentioned that there was a doctor who was uh, yelling. she gave the example. She gave, yeah. Oh, she gave the example of the doctor who was yelling at her patient who was breastfeeding. In her office. In her office, which is awful since that's something you should be trying to promote. I don't know when that was or if we are different now. In terms of society being more accepting of that, I, I really don't know. But so far, all the time for the first four months of Scarlett's, my my niece, his name is Scar, her name is Scarlett. Um, uh, so far, I haven't seen any any type of um, shaming. But let's hope it stays that way. Well, how was it when you're when you're out with your sister and she's breastfeeding in public? Do you see anybody rolling their eyes? Do you? I do. I do she, see she people. Get people. Does she have p- people from the establishment trying to have her move? Not that I have seen myself. People will turn away, but that's as as much as I've seen. You know, just. But I, I haven't seen uh, something that will someone who will actively approach my sister and say something. She, I, have, I haven't seen that as of yet. Um, well, that's great. I, I wish everybody had that opportunity. Um, and that that freedom to breastfeed um, in public, which is a right, a federally protected right, right, without being shamed. How was your sister's experience in terms of la- having the baby latch? Because that's something that I, when I spoke with Kathleen, yes. she talked about the culture of uh, bottle feeding showing up even in stock photos that display improper latching of oh, wow. the of the baby's mouth and the mother's breast. So the first day, so I was there the first day that Scarlett was born and um, I saw some posters uh, displaying the proper positioning of the child's head when latching on. That's where I actually first heard the term latch because I've, I really wasn't 
uh, exposed to that particular phrase. But during the first day, the nurse showed uh, my sister how how it works, and she latched on right away. Like it was maybe it was luck maybe that, that that it happened because I hear that a lot of mothers have trouble with that, uh, but my sister did not, so it seemed pretty smooth. And ever since then, the baby prefers breast milk over over any other kind of. That's great. Well, I'm glad that your sister's having such a positive experience. And um, hopefully that's something that we can extend to every every woman who decides to breastfeed one day in society. Mm-hmm. I hope so. I hope so. And uh, and hopefully the negative or the shame around it uh, is, is, is lessened. I, I know that during your conversation you had, you explained uh, that some fathers um, – want to have uh overnight with the baby while the woman is still breastfeeding and these are separated couples separated couples yeah right you mentioned that uh separated couples that would hurt the child i believe in uh or impact the child in a negative way well unfortunately the courts don't seem to recognize that that's a problem and if they do recognize it they don't give it much weight So the hope that I have is that conversations like these that I have with Dr. Kendall Tackett can be used by survivors to educate the people who are making decisions around their well-being and their children's well-being. I hope hope so. I really do. Great. So until next time, Michael, thank you for joining me in this conversation. Thank you, Terry. I'm excited for the next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by CanDoIt Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join CanDoIt Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast.com at gmail.com with your questions.